This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It is the fourth week of April, and this week, President Trump said he disagreed strongly with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's decision to allow many categories of businesses in the state to reopen as soon as this weekend. Case counts have still been rising materially in Georgia, and Kemp's decision upset many mayors in the state who believe it's much too early to reopen. But you can understand why Kemp might have expected the president to support his move. After all, the president has been ginning up opposition to stay-at-home orders in other parts of the country, tweeting that we should liberate Michigan, Minnesota, and Virginia. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh described the president's shifts as follows. Trump originally said we had coronavirus under control, then said, never mind, we need to lock down, then said, never mind, we're opening on Easter, then said, never mind, we're staying closed, then said, never mind, we're opening, and then said he disagrees with Georgia for opening. At the same time he's been taking these shifting positions on closures of restaurants and stores, the president has been reluctant to talk about the ongoing shortage of tests, one of the key factors that is keeping the president's vision of a reopened country from becoming a reality. Later on in today's show, we'll talk about the road to reopening with Sam Brannan of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Sam joined us a few weeks ago to talk about a pandemic simulation he helped run in 2019 and what lessons it might hold for the actual pandemic we face now. He'll give us an update on whether we're learning any lessons. But now let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by... But now let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center, and I'm joined by Tim Carney, commentary editor at the Washington Examiner on the right, and on the left, Christine Emba, columnist at the Washington Post. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi, Josh. So uh, this week, Congress agreed to replenish money for the Paycheck Protection Program. That's the program that makes loans to certain kinds of businesses that are hurt by the pandemic and then forgives those loans so long as the businesses keep their workers on payroll. The program has had three big problems. One is there wasn't enough money for it, and so the money ran out. A second is that applying for the loans has been cumbersome, and smaller businesses with less deep banking relationships have sometimes been left behind. And a third problem is that while the program is ostensibly for small businesses, some of the money has been going to businesses that strike a lot of people as inappropriate. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack both obtained loans, though they're paying them back after public criticism and new guidance from the Treasury Department that says large, often publicly traded companies generally shouldn't qualify for them. Tim, is this program working? It's not working because it's really hard for people to get this money. The small businesses should basically be able to line up, get a quick injection of cash, and then afterwards, and this is supposedly the way it was supposed to work, showing some of their expenses, um, decide what they have to repay back as a loan. And if it were working, a lot fewer people would have been getting laid off. The, uh, the, the, reason it's called paycheck protection is that it was supposed to be able to get so that people who would otherwise lose their jobs were keeping their jobs while not working and getting the money through the employer. That was a hope to keep employer and employee attached. It's not doing that. And that's why the unemployment rate is going even higher than it has to. Christine, is that right? Because it seems to me there are two objections here about the program that are in tension with each other. You know, one is that it should be easier to get the money. And the other is that the money is going to the wrong people. It seems like if you make it easier to get the money, then there's going to be even more of it going to businesses where people are going to look at it and say, hey, does that business really need this? It makes me wonder if there was any way to design this program that people would find satisfactory, that would that people would feel was both fair and generous enough. Well, so it's interesting. I would say that those two problems are not in opposition with each other. Um, I think that together they're kind of symbolic of the problems with our larger system um, of getting funding for small businesses and individuals and also the way that inequality and, you know, wealth and capital power um, plays a role in how our legislation is set up. 
I mean, so first of all, you know, we did have the idea for this program to benefit small businesses. Uh, America says it loves small businesses. But when you look at how it was passed, you'll see that there was just intense lobbying uh, for two weeks in the middle of a pandemic that allowed big businesses um, to insert, you know, regulation that says that actually, well, you can still qualify as a small business as long as you have subsidiaries. The fact that these companies were able to pay lobbyists to quickly influence lawmakers to make sure that they could be included and dip their fingers in this pot of money um, that was originally, yes, intended for small businesses, just shows how our system fails and how much lobbying can have an impact. And of course, lobbying is done by companies that have money, that have capital, um, who were able to gain that money and capital by their influence on Congress and lobbying. It's kind of a sick cycle. And then you're talking about, okay, well, there's a problem with how individuals are able to access this money. Part of it is that we have decided that everything has to go through a commercial banking system in general. And this is unfortunately a problem with the banking system and with running everything through private companies. It's not even necessarily that big businesses are able to push small businesses to the back of the line or that they are doing nefarious things. It's that big businesses tend to have existing relationships with big banks. They are already at the front of the line. They can get their paperwork processed faster. They have more connections. If you don't have the connections, you don't get the money. Was there an alternative available, Christine? I mean, we we don't have an existing system for the federal government to start paying private payrolls directly. I think one of the reasons they went with the private banks was that it you know it ex- it exists. However imperfect that system is, that you know the bankers are out there. Most businesses have some sort of relationship with a bank. It seemed like the most viable way to get money out as quickly as possible. What, was there was there an alternative structure that would have avoided the banks that could have been rolled out and would have worked better? No, I think you're right. There's not really an alternative structure uh, because our system has developed to rely on these existing relationships. I do think that um, we could have spent more time and more money thinking about how to get money to individuals um, rather than a one-time payment. Would this have had the same effect on small businesses being able to keep their payrolls intact in the same way that they would before? Maybe not. But you do sort of wonder what is more important and what we should lavish the majority of our attention on. Tim, what, what do you think? Is there a different way you would have gone about this? Well, I, in some ways, I think the, the framework of this addresses the, most of the, the special interest problem that, uh, that Christine's talking about because the idea is you get money out the door fast and simple. Now, what helps big guys sort of unfairly profit is often the complexity of rules. Complexity is a subsidy to the guys who have not just the lobbyists, but the lawyers. But getting money out the door fast, and then some of that under this plan is uh, a loan that you have to pay back, while some of it is forgivable. So it's basically a grant. And that math and that calculation gets done later. So the sort of general idea of this is everybody gets money, And then some of you are going to have to pay some of it back. Some will have to pay all of it back. Some of you will have to pay none. I think that that was the appropriate framework for making sure everybody gets money. If you didn't deserve it, you're going to pay it back. 
and it shouldn't have had to be complicated. Isn't that itself a form of complexity? I mean, I can imagine a lot of small business owners who either their business is closed or business is way down, and their usual reaction would be to lay workers off. And if you said to them, we'll pay your workers payroll, uh, then that might get them to to keep those workers on. But if you say to them, we'll give you a loan, and maybe we will forgive it later if you meet certain conditions a few months from now, and we can't tell you now whether it's going to be forgiven or not, I think a lot of those businesses are going to look at that and say, that's too risky for me. I can't afford the risk that I'll have to pay this back. I'm going to do the layoffs anyway and let my let my workers collect unemployment. I mean, I think there are reasons they set it up like that. But I think that is complexity. And I think that's a significant barrier to the program having more uptake than it's had. Yeah. And, and I agree. I, I would just make it simple and just more blanket rules. Everything you spend on payroll is going to be forgiven. So don't worry about it. And if you're spending a, a small portion of it on, you know, just paying, you're, you're leasing your kitchen equipment, uh, you can you can keep doing that. And that's going to be forgiven, too. The Congress is 535 people, though. And everybody had different ideas of what different parts of this money were about. And a lot of the guys didn't necessarily uh, realize it. And part of the tension in what Christine mentioned earlier, are we getting money to individuals or are we getting money to small businesses? Are, and then the disability, the unemployment insurance, are we trying to help people who lose their job or are we trying to help people from having to go back to a low paying job? That's one of the real debates that hasn't been addressed on this. So we have 535 different opinions going into this. It wasn't simple. I think it could have been uh, it could have been simpler, and uh, the the suffering of the increased unemployment is is because of the complexity. Yes. Even with this new cash infusion, the PPP program is likely to run out of money again, which was partly by design. Members of Congress wanted to reserve the ability to negotiate what's going to be in the next bailout package. If the CARES Act was phase three of the bailout and this replenishment of PPP was phase three and a half, we're still planning on phase four. And the center of the dispute about what's going to be in phase four is over assistance to state and local governments. The CARES Act provided a lot of money for states and localities to to help with expenses that are being driven by coronavirus, but they're still waiting for help with lost revenue, huge drops in sales tax, income tax revenues because of the swooning economy. So Democrats have been pushing hard for state aid. The president has said that state aid is going to be needed, but Mitch McConnell is resistant. He says states should be allowed to declare bankruptcy if they can't pay their bills. Some Republicans are campaigning against what they call the blue state bailout. Uh, Christine, what's the case for state aid and and what should that aid look like? (laughs) I, I, you know, I just have to laugh when I hear that phrase, the blue state bailout. Um, Generally, it's observable that it's more red states that are taking more money from the federal government than they are paying in in taxes. Um, But at the same time, also, this is just a ridiculous uh, discussion to even be having. The entire country is suffering under a pandemic as I think Andrew Cuomo said, this is not the time for partisanship in blue versus red. But moving past my momentary outrage, paying states, uh, giving states funding when they need it is important because states are the closest to individual citizens. Uh, they provide firefighters, police forces, healthcare services. Uh, they help fund um, food services. States are the governmental system you know, closest to cities and counties that are on the ground uh, providing day-to-day resources and needs for their citizens. If the states aren't working, you know, if roads aren't getting fixed, if there are no firefighters to call, if there are no police officers, then the country will feel it too. Uh, This is not that, you know, states are expendable. They do things that are very important. They need to be funded, period. 
I, I think it's a very inapt and, and slightly demeaning response to come back and point out that Republican states, because they have fewer wealthy taxpayers compared to uh, poor people who are on the aid programs that, uh, you know, uh, such as welfare, food stamps, unemployment insurance to say, oh, well, these red states are takers and the blue states are, are payers because that's about individual income tax versus individual benefits. What we're talking about here is how the states have managed their finances. And the truth is the States run by Democrats, New Jersey, Illinois, most notably, are in the worst shape by most measures. Whether you ask Mercatus Center, which is a free market institute, whether you ask Pew, they'll say New Jersey and Illinois are the worst. And so when I see Illinois lining up for this money, it makes me feel the same way I feel when I see Boeing getting a special bailout in the in the uh, previous bill. I say, wait a second, their problems predated and had nothing to do with the coronavirus. The irony is that one of the worst <laughs> red states, as far as spending no more than you take in and having unfunded liabilities, is Mitch McConnell's Kentucky. So Kentucky would be the, the biggest red state beneficiary, theoretically, uh, of this blue state bailout. That said, I, I do agree with the idea that this is not the time to be worrying. In other words, if my kid has done something dumb to get himself into trouble, I go and I show up at the party where the drugs and the alcohol are going and I take him home. I don't, I don't lecture him before I bring him to safety. So I don't think I like the fact that Republicans are trying to prevent the blue state, the red state, the blue state bailout. But I do think it's inapt to point out that these, uh, that the Republican states are poorer. Uh, and so therefore they're really the ones being bailed out. But, but I think a lot of this is, is beside the point right now. I mean, I Illinois has mismanaged its public employee pension funds, but Illinois did not get itself into this. This mess by mismanaging its public employee pension funds. Illinois, like every other state, is in a mess right now because of this unprecedented economic situation that has cratered their current tax revenues and significantly worsened their economic position compared to what it was before. That's also true of states that made responsible decisions. I mean, California ran up a huge rainy day fund uh, under Governor Jerry Brown. New York has been relatively good about funding its pension funds. Those states are going to be in deep trouble too, as are red states that I think you would tend to highlight as more responsible fiscal players. I mean, Texas is going to be in a world of hurt right now because of the huge hit to the energy industry that's going to destroy a lot of tax revenues in Texas. Florida is completely dependent on tourism, uh, not just for its economy, but for tax revenues. They depend enormously on hotel taxes and sales taxes paid by tourists. So this is, you know, I think people, they focus too much on moral hazard. They say, well, you should have been prepared for this. I don't think it makes sense to say that states should have been budgetarily prepared for the idea that they're, they're economies were going to have to, in large part, shut down for months. This was an unprecedented situation. It's going to affect everyone, whether they were responsible or not. And so I think you, you can bracket the question of, you know, did you did you run up a big enough rainy day fund? Did you fund your pensions appropriately? Those problems will still exist after this is over, after you provide aid to states to to address the revenue shortfalls that are that are happening now. So I, I just think it's I just think it's incorrect to say that any of this is because of those irresponsible fiscal decisions states made, even though some states did did in fact make irresponsible fiscal decisions. I don't disagree, Josh. I do I do agree that this isn't something we necessarily should have planned for because this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And so this is why I've argued, and I've argued to conservative readers at the Washington Examiner, not to think about any of this as being welfare or, or special unemployment benefits or handouts to businesses. This is, we needed people to shut down 
in order to stop the spread of the virus. And that includes, as you're pointing out, things that would be bringing in revenue to the states. So uh, this is why I ultimately will come down with both of you and not with Senator McConnell. And as you said, Illinois will have to deal with its headache on the other side. I'm just hoping that states will see this and start saying, okay, let's start being a little more conservative. So if a more moderate problem comes our way, we can handle it better. Let's take a break. I'll be back with Tim Carney of The Washington Examiner and Christine Emba of The Washington Post to talk more about the response to coronavirus. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abdurraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Tim Carney, commentary editor at The Washington Examiner. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. And Samuel Brannon joins us now. Sam is senior fellow and director of the Risk and Foresight Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's a former policy planner with the Department of Defense. Hello, Sam. Hi, Josh. Nice to be back with you. Uh, So we had you on the show six weeks ago to talk about a very timely pandemic simulation exercise that you helped run in late 2019. And what you said then was, we're already behind, we've reacted this too late, we've been too slow to get the testing that we need up and ready, the White House has been sending inconsistent messages. Six weeks on, how are we doing now? Josh, we're in a worse place than I could have imagined we'd be. I thought that this White House would be slow off the blocks but I assumed that there would be a level of leadership and competence that we've gone in the opposite direction from. Uh, Tim, does that sound fair to you? <laughs> so it's really hard to, to, to describe what this White House is doing because of the human being at the head of it. In other words, uh, you described uh, Matt Walsh's characterization about on the one hand and on the other hand, and this day he's there and that day he's he's here. So as far as looking for leadership, and this isn't just some area idea, this is governor saying, okay, here's what the president says and here's what I'm going to carry out. He obviously isn't providing that because I think that Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, was kind of following what had been Trump's most recent leadership and then it tacks in another direction. Uh, that said, there's lots of stuff going on behind the scenes and we're going to see sort of down the line how some of that is working. I think that uh, better stuff early on really would have been much more important as far as freeing up the FDA to allow more testing instead of the FDA sort of cramping down in its typical over-regulatory way on testing. Um, And some of that has been freed up. So we're doing better now than we were in February when we should have been acting. Uh, The biggest problem now is that the president doesn't provide that kind of leadership that would be nice from the chief executive right now. 
Sam, uh, specifically on that testing matter, I mean, ba- back in March, uh, there had been there had been all these problems with the rollout of the of the test uh, for the coronavirus and very crimped availability, and a lot of complaints that the FDA was, as Tim notes, sort of being too restrictive, making it too difficult to develop tests to market those tests. Now we have these antibody tests, and there's been sort of this opposite issue where the FDA has allowed all sorts of experimental stuff, and we're discovering that a lot of the tests don't work very well, and in particular, they generate a significant amount of false positives. So people think that they have antibodies uh, to the coronavirus, but then actually maybe they don't. So is, you know, what what is the balance there? Is either of those approaches working? What, what would it entail to have uh, an approach that both does quality control for testing and also ensures an adequate availability of tests? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, which is that you're, if you have no data or you have bad data, neither of those is helpful for you before you have a vaccine or you have um, some, some treatments available uh, to those who are most affected by this. So what you need is you need surveillance data, disease surveillance data to understand the scope of the problem, to really understand how it's progressing, to get that visibility on a state and local level so that you can effectively channel your resources if you're the federal government. So the sort of let a thousand flowers bloom, let the private sector do its thing. There's no question that American innovation uh, outpaces just about any other country in the world. And it certainly does at the scale at which we have innovation. And so bringing forward uh, biotech innovation, health innovation at this point is, is critical. But as you correctly point out, you can't do that in a sort of Wild West way that doesn't get you accurate results. So you need these bureaucracies that have that overview doing what they do. Uh, but I think we have, there's, there's a historically unique challenge here, which is the speed at which we'd like to go versus the health and safety standards that we need to enforce. And that kind of comes down to, again, the, the governance and the leadership uh, issue, which is that even if the federal government, from a sort of ideological point of view, wants states to lead, uh, call it a political calculation, call it just the way that they think the country should work, the federal government still has an important role to play in making sure that there is a standard met in the tests in terms of availability and in terms of effectiveness. Uh, and I think... What you what you have is that complete uh, lack of consistency and competence that comes from the president himself and then flows down. The president has systematically over the last year or so removed anyone who disagrees with him. Um, you've had a chief of staff of the White House changed out in the midst of this. We have no idea what role the new chief of staff is playing. Mike Pence was given the head of this coronavirus task force after it was uh, taken from the secretary of HHS. So you, you have these sort of leadership flops and flips in the middle, and then the president constantly reasserting himself with essentially no scientific understanding. And so it's, it's really no surprise to me that the bureaucracies are not doing their thing, because anyone who's worked in a White House or in government knows that uh, you know the natural tendency of bureaucracies is to go slow, to do things the way they haven't before. And that is why under the Obama administration, after you had uh, the Ebola scare, you had a fundamental restructuring of their approach to public health issues. You had the creation of a special office within the NSC. All of these things in government, the processes you put in place, your ability to project leadership and guidance, that all matters in, in the outcomes. And that's why we're not getting the kind of outcomes we should. Bureaucracy doesn't just do its thing by itself. 
Christina, a remarkable thing to me about this is that, you know, what, whatever one can say about the president's approach to this, it hasn't, in my view, been authoritarian. In fact, he has seemed desperate to sort of disclaim as much responsibility as he can, and, and that has caused him to disclaim a significant amount of power here, uh, leaving decisions up to, I mean, obviously, under the Constitution, he has to leave many of these decisions to state, to state governors, but through these, you know, these waffling positions and his, you know, his constant statements about this is the state's job, that's the state's job, it, it's basically, he's almost intentionally weakening his own presidency uh, in hopes that that means that he can't be blamed for whatever happens. Yeah, that's exactly what is happening. You have hit the nail on the head with that one. I mean, thinking about this metaphor of the starting block, you know, America was not slow off the starting block. I would say that America fell off the block, Pierre. Uh, And Donald Trump, uh, as president, has essentially made it his job to just pretend that the block wasn't there in the first place. And in fact, that blocks suck uh, and they're terrible. And he did the right thing by falling off. Um, It's not working, I don't think. I think people every week as a new phase of this crisis rolls in and we demonstrate anew how unprepared uh, we are, uh, people know whose responsibility this was supposed to be and who has failed. But Trump is Trump. At this point, he's not interested in doing what's best for the country. I say at this point, I don't really think that he was at any point. Um, He wants to save his own skin and make it seem like he's in the clear and he will scrabble around to do whatever he can to make that point. That's his MO. That's what he wants. Sam, to what extent can state governments address this crisis themselves. I mean, when as, as you have these governors who feel an acute lack of federal leadership, and they're trying to make their own decisions about how to protect their states, and, and they also inherently have a large role to play in this themselves. There are a lot of powers that even under a more normal presidency would be expected to be executed by the states. How are they doing on that? I mean, I keep seeing these announcements. Massachusetts is working on setting up a contact tracing system so that when there are additional outbreaks of coronavirus, they'll be able to identify people who may have been exposed and try to get those people tested and treated. Minnesota is rolling out a a major expansion of testing. You have all of these regional agreements among states uh, who are coordinating policy so that they work together because obviously this virus can move across state borders. Uh, Is that stuff effective? Are states going to be able to say, well, the federal government isn't here for me, but I'm going to implement my own effective response for this? So I, I think that it is going to work to a certain extent, and certainly governors are emerging as leaders and, and as heroes in some cases. You have dramatic examples as well, like Larry Hogan in Maryland flying in his own test kits from South Korea, effectively conducting his own international relations and policy. And that one is reported to have really irked uh, the president who who didn't do that. Um, And also highlighting how much more effective South Korea is, not only in having sort of flattened the curve, but in holding an election in the midst of all of this. And I think you you see a lot of innovation going on in California as well with contact tracing, with different kinds of approaches to this. Um, and and so that's that's going to work to a certain extent. But I think as uh, as Governor Cuomo has has pointed out in New York, uh, there's a level at which states just don't have enough resources. So in a crisis, where are they going to get the ventilators from? How can they concentrate resources? And they are competing against one another for scarce resources. So the sort of scale and 
buying power, organizational power that you get from the federal government just isn't there. So ultimately, you're seeing little pockets of success, but absent a federal policy, uh, you're also increasing risk across the board. You're creating competitive pressures. Uh, and then you're also relying on, on good governance. So you have Georgia opening up for business. That creates a risk for all of Georgia's neighbors. Anyone who's flying in and out of, uh, you know, the Atlanta airport elsewhere. Um, the one thing we see about this disease is that success uh, in, in one place, if there's a lack of success anywhere else, uh, you, you're still, the, the risk uh, recurs. And so having a uniform approach, having a federal approach is very important. I think it is fitting that much of this be done at the state level. And I think too often in the U.S., especially in the in the media, we want things to be done by the federal level. That creates a sort of simple picture. But the fact is that different states have different needs, that this is an unprecedented challenge, and we want different people trying different things because we're not sure exactly what's going to work. That some states are leaning more on uh, what actions are safe and freeing up outdoor activities. Others are leaning more on what actions are essential and therefore locking down some outdoor activities will get both of these are governors doing what they think is best and we'll get some information from that and we'll learn better what works best. The federal government has not done its job and there are some jobs that are essentially federal such as the FDA is already in the position of allowing or not allowing uh, testing. Well, so they were the ones who had to step out of the way. <laughs> and so that's a, a situation where you needed federal action because the government was building walls to progress. Other things are essentially national because, yes, tracing would much better be done on the national level than on the state level because this virus doesn't respect uh, state borders very well. But so many of the things, what activities are we going to lock down? What are we going to do with the public schools? When are we going going to reopen that. That has to be left up to the states. That's the way our federal system is set up. That's the way it ought to be. Even if you don't like the decision that some of these guys are making, centralizing this, you're asking to give Donald Trump more power. That doesn't make any sense. Christine? Yeah, I think it's great that states are, you know, taking up the baton just to mix my sports metaphors a little more here. Um, in some circumstances, absolutely, states can be more nimble. Um, states perhaps know best what things look like on the ground and what their citizens need and the particularities of their different places. Um, that said, the federal government and governments in general are supposed to think about people, you know, citizens and social well-being overall. Um, and I I think that the federal government, unfortunately, is needed in some of these circumstances, and we are being let down by the fact that the federal government isn't as involved as it could be. So, you know, I think about perverse incentives, say, for these immunity tests. Um, who is supposed to be thinking about those big questions? I'm thinking about, you know, deciding the proper scale um, and directing tests and resources to the states, to the regions where they're most needed and will do the most good. Who can compare those things? I don't think that states are going to advocate uh, for other states or say, yeah, we, we need them less, actually. You can send them somewhere else. Um, 
And as we were saying, I think of coordination between states. The virus doesn't respect state lines. So how do we get not just one state to talk to another, but how do we think about entire regions? And I wish the federal government in some ways um, was more involved. And yes, I totally agree with you, Tim, in that I think the idea of you know giving more power to Donald Trump specifically is insane because he has proved himself to be an insane person in this circumstance. But Josh, I agree with you that Trump has not been particularly authoritarian during uh, this crisis. And I actually think that it's likely that he will continue to back away from his responsibilities and back away from taking the reins here because he doesn't know what to do and doesn't want to be blamed. And in that case, this actually gives the federal government an opportunity to maybe be more coordinated and helpful than they would be um, in other times when the president was more present. I wish they would take advantage of that where it makes sense. Sam, what do you make of some of these choices that that states have been making, both with these these regional agreements and then obviously the governor of Georgia has made a lot of headlines with this opening decision that is too aggressive even for the president? Are, are you worried that we're going to see rebound uh, outbreaks in, in places like Georgia that are making these moves? I think we're definitely going to see rebound outbreaks based on everything we know about epidemiology uh, to date and and how this virus uh, attacks and, and moves. We're nowhere near the amount of infection rate we'd need in a general population to start to lift any type of, of restrictions. And I think we see you know that at the society level civil society most most georgians i think are sort of scratching their heads about this this seems to be sort of a, a fringe group within georgia um and you know of course what what this does point out is that in addition to the public health crisis we have a growing economic crisis and it's hitting different states and, and regions and different types of workers in different ways and of course you know i think probably all of us are recording this from the safety of our own homes we're not having to go into work like essential workers are so you know the 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 longer this goes on the less effective we are at dealing with the public health challenge the more the economic impact and i think probably uh, the more varied people's individual behavior will be and the more varied that, that state behavior will be. Uh, but even in states where you've had relatively small outbreaks and there's sort of a rural scattered population, let's say Iowa or South Dakota, you now see that critical parts of the economy, critical parts of, of our own uh, economy in terms of necessities, the meat supply chain uh, is being hugely affected by this. So um, you know, this is just going to be a very difficult problem. It has very local uh, ramifications or local considerations. Governance and governments at all levels have never mattered more in our lifetimes than they do right now. And we're seeing how up to the task or, or not they are. And I, I do think there's innovation going on. There's learning going on. Uh, but that complete lack of leadership from the federal level and in fact, the federal government essentially spending its time trying to manage the personality of one person is harming the national response. Um, so, you know, I don't know how do you wire around a, a president? How much can states do? How much can localities do? How successful can we be when there's such a broken element at the very top that's taking an hour and a half of our day telling us to inject ourselves uh, with harmful chemicals that then the next day 
uh, major chemical manufacturers have to come out and say, please don't, you know, drink bleach. Um, it, it's truly an unprecedented challenge. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe there are a handful of other countries in the world, Brazil, the Philippines, a few others that that have leaders that are that are like this at the top and, and none of them are doing very well in the response. So we'll we'll see over time whether the strength of the US federal system comes through or not. I'm skeptical that it will. And that puts us on a path for a continued public health crisis that goes through the summer. We're, we're beginning to see there's not a lot of seasonality in this, if there's any. And that takes us into a fall uh, when we might have continued lockdowns as well. We've had the warning from the head of the CDC this week about the coincidence of flu season with the coronavirus uh, continued outbreak. Let's take a break. I'll be back with Christine Emba of The Washington Post, Tim Carney of The Washington Examiner, and our special guest Sam Brannon of the Center for Strategic and International Studies to talk about protests against the stay-at-home orders. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Tim Carney, commentary editor at The Washington Examiner. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. And our special guest is Samuel Brannan. Sam is senior fellow and director of the Risk and Foresight Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a former policy planner with the Department of Defense. So, Tim, uh, one thing Sam noted in the last segment is is the likelihood that, you know, as as time goes on and as the, the economic situation worsens and some of the stuff starts to wear thin with people, we might might see more varied levels of compliance uh, with some of the uh, government directives about how to stop the spread of the virus. And and I've been expecting to see that too, but I don't really think it's showing up in the polling yet when when pollsters survey the public about, you know, are you more concerned about that 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 the uh, lockdown orders will be lifted too soon and let the virus come back or are you more concerned that they'll be kept in place too long and hurt the economy too much? You, you get really strong majorities that are cautious about this and basically people support the orders that are in place, they want them to continue. Maybe there are some questions at the margins about fishing and, you know, whether Walmart can sell plants and that sort of stuff. But for the most part, uh, people, the, the public view seems to be that, that this is very dangerous. We need to continue these orders. So I've been struck by these protest movements that are popping up in states that are clearly driven uh, by existing conservative activist groups really trying to push back on these uh, on these orders. Are, is, are conservatives getting the Republican Party on the wrong side of a wedge issue here, basically saying that we need to reopen at a, at a time when the public is, is not yet thirsty to reopen? I do think that the tone of the protest, which is let's open up back now and the governor is a Nazi, uh, misses the mark by uh, a mile. And not just the mark of accuracy, but the mark of public opinion. 
On the other hand, I think that every governor would be really smart every week to say, okay, how can we loosen things in a little way this week? Not because the coronavirus is disappearing, not because we have things under control, but because we did a very sudden, very dramatic shutdown. And we ought to say, okay, Let's look at a neighboring state. Virginia, for instance, allows you to go fishing. My Maryland doesn't allow me to go fishing. Maybe Governor Hogan could say, all right, you can go fishing, not on a crowded pier. We're going to free that up this week. I think that it becomes really tiresome after a while for us to be locked up forever in our houses. And so the, the proper way for governors to address this would be to every week release the pressure a little bit and that in that way you would take away even more credibility from some of these protesters because I see these protesters I say no we shouldn't all be crowding in together at a protest at the state capitol on the other hand I see the response and I say no we shouldn't also be prohibited from running in on a beach at least six feet away from everybody else. Sam, I'm wondering what your simulation exercise has to say about this. Did you did you run through the idea that there would be significant political resistance in states to some virus fighting measures that you might see some states making premature moves to to relax those? What do you what do you think from that exercise that people should be watching out for here? So I'll I'll be honest and say we we didn't really get to the state level. We were thinking nationally and internationally. Um, but I think there are probably some lessons from from that that can be applied here. And the number one thing is that um, you know life just doesn't get back to normal until you have your hands around the public health challenge, and until there is trusted communication between the state and and the citizens. And so um, we have a real challenge continued. Uh, and 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 I agree. You know that includes sort of the communication about not only what you shouldn't be doing, but what you should be doing, and what a reasonable timeline means. I, I feel like it's very difficult right now uh, to discern what is the actual time horizon here? What do people psychologically need to be prepared for? If you look at a government like Singapore, which is encountering a resurgence right now, the coronavirus, its leaders uh, warned people of exactly that potentially happening, even after sort of beating the virus early. They give a very systematic, non-hyperbolic briefing every day about um, exactly what the timeline is. And they continued to think on a year-long timeline. Uh, and they continue to very clearly explain why they're changing things, both in a permissive sense and a non-permissive sense. So that that is a that's a key here is is communication. And I think some states are doing it much better than others. At the federal level, we're doing a miserable job. I mean, I would again point to the interview we had with the director of the CDC, where he was then immediately undercut by the president and the vice president. If you can't trust information coming from the director of the CDC in a crisis time, who can you trust it from? Christine, one thing I've been struck by, given the, the what, what seems to me like a fairly large amount of public patience with these measures, is that that's persisting even as some of the economic measures that are supposed to help the public sit and wait uh, have been slow to roll out. Patricia Cohen from the New York Times had some statistics about unemployment. So the the big expansion in unemployment that, that was supposed to come out because of the CARES Act, and some of it is out there. 44 states are paying the increased unemployment checks uh, that's, that people are entitled to, and the other six are trying to get it up. Uh, but only 10 states are paying unemployment to people who are new eligible, people who were self-employed, people who had to quit their jobs because of the crisis. It's taking them a long time to get that money out. And I'm wondering how long people are going to patiently wait uh, while they've been put out of work uh, with the expectation that they're going to get money from the government, even though they're not getting it yet. Sure. Um, 
You know, I think that one thing that has become increasingly obvious over time is uh, that contra Fox News and a few governors who have really drunk the Kool-Aid, I guess, most people would not, in fact, uh, like to sacrifice their grandparents or themselves to see the economy reopen. You know, most people want to have jobs. They want to get their unemployment insurance. They want to uh, be able to pay their mortgage on time. They want to go to the movie theater, but they would rather be alive and healthy uh, than worry about those things at this moment. And what seems clear, even through the mixed messaging from the federal government, is that staying home and staying safe uh, is more likely to keep you alive and healthy um, than going out and rioting and complaining about the fact that your benefits are late. I think there is, you know, sadness and stress um, about how poorly some of these government plans have been laid out um, and how the benefits are not accessible yet. But I do think that people are somewhat understanding, you know, this is a crisis, nobody planned for this, it's kind of hard to get some of those things up and running. And they're hopeful that in the future things will work out. But, you know, their primary concern is staying alive, and so they're going to stay home. I do wonder, though, when it comes to compliance with these stay-at-home measures, um, not that people are going to, you know, flood the beach and start barbecuing, but just that people get sloppy over time. Um, After three months of staying at home, maybe you just, you know, psychologically want to sneak out for a day or two. Maybe you put on your mask less carefully. Um, Maybe you slow down your hand washing regimen from 40 times a day to, you know, 10. Um, Because that's how people are. It's hard to keep up this level of vigilance forever. And I think that's something to be more worried about than the kind of astroturfed protests who, to most Americans, look crazy and foolish. There's one more aspect of this that I want to talk about before we go, which is these these stories that we've been seeing about the federal government using its powers to seize shipments of personal protective equipment that are heading to states or to hospital systems, and also stories about the lengths those hospital systems and states are going to ensure that their shipments don't get seized. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker even got the New England Patriots to use their private plane to bring a shipment from China to ensure that it would not get intercepted. Sam, I'm wondering what you make of these stories, because I think it's been hard to make sense of precisely what's happening. A lot of the people involved in in, in this are not eager to talk to the press about it. Uh, And while this is obviously very frustrating for states and for hospitals that are getting these shipments intercepted, there also is a valid federal role here, sort of to ensure the stuff is going to places where it's really needed, rather than passing through brokers who repeatedly mark it up. And so can, can we tell, is the federal government using these powers appropriately? What does the Trump administration need to be telling people about what it's up to with these shipments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, it's a sign that, you know, you have many actors doing what they think is the right thing, absent clear guidance and direction from above. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you have the president telling states that they're responsible. Um, and at the state level, you have various levels of coordination. And obviously, you know, most of the hospitals that we're talking about in, are, are privately privately owned, privately funded operating as private companies, um, making decisions themselves. 
And so, you know, absent absent leadership, uh, you know, leadership uh, abhors a, a, or I guess uh, actors in the in our in our system abhor a vacuum. So they're going to take action. That's what that's what Americans do. We we take the challenge on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all acting rational in the same way. Um, so we're creating this competing market pressures. We're hurting the ability of of first responders to have what they need. And again, it it really just goes down to the fact that you know this is a national level challenge the likes of which the last time i think we faced was really the second world war and during the second world war we created a number of government structures and entities whose job it was to um, help uh, sort of make sure that there was um, equitable sharing across uh, a society when resources were thin uh, and when there was a sort of wartime effort to need to focus resources against a specific challenge. So I don't agree with, you know, we're not at war with the virus, but on the other, on the other side, as a society, we need a wartime footing. And to do that, you need strong federal powers. Uh, so I think we're going to continue to see this unevenness and this anarchy absent that sort of organization. I mean, to me, it's remarkable that we have this quote-unquote coronavirus task force, uh, but it's mostly comprised of people who are already inside the federal government. Let's tap some expertise from outside. Let's think creatively about how to put into place new government structures or coordinating bodies uh, that are going to help us fix some of these problems. I mean, this is not, we're not, we're not going to be done with this in a month. We're going to be done with this when we have a vaccine. That could be a year, could be a year and a half, could be two years. We may never get a vaccine. So putting into place these structures now, thinking about them, good governance, all going to matter to what the outcome is. Sam Brandon is Senior Fellow and Director of the Risk and Foresight Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Sam, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Josh. that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Tim Carney, it's your soapbox. Harvard Magazine recently ran a story called The Risks of Homeschooling. It featured the work of a scholar named Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard, who is advocating a presumptive ban on homeschooling with the burden on parents to demonstrate justification for permission to homeschool. Her main worry throughout her uh, journal articles and in this Harvard Magazine article on her seems to be that conservative Christian parents will be imbuing their own values rather than what she calls democratic values. As a conservative Christian parent, I do agree that some of the values that I am passing on to my children through their Catholic school and now their temporary homeschool are different than the values of Montgomery County, Maryland or the state of Maryland. I also think that one of the democratic values she ought to look up is in our constitution, in our founding documents, in the very nature of our country, the idea of pluralism of what we used to call liberalism, that free people ought to be free within bounds to live their own lives, to raise their own children. Christine Embo, what's your rant? So my rant is against the deference uh, in situations of absurdity within the president's coronavirus task force briefings that we have to suffer through um, every evening. So for instance, the president uh, told America that we should be injecting ourselves with disinfectant or perhaps somehow opening ourselves up to sunlight like E.T. in order to defeat the virus within us. This is insanity. It's 
dangerous. So what was the response to this statement from the reporters, from the other members of the task force, from the administration at large as they watched this happen? Not much. Not speaking out is dangerous. Not speaking out is a failure of courage. Not speaking out and saying the obvious truth, uh, President Trump, this is insane. Please stop telling Americans to drink Lysol. Americans, if you can hear this, don't do it would be an act of mercy at this point. I don't understand why nobody is moved to act. For my rant, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio gave remarks this week saying the first thing we'll do after reopening the city is a ticker tape parade for healthcare workers. I'm all for honoring healthcare workers, but the first thing? The reopening is like a dimmer switch. We'll start with lower density activities. Ticker tape parades will be approximately the last thing that it is safe to restart. And I realize this wasn't a literal proposal, but it gets at Bill de Blasio's mental state and how similar it is to the president's mental state. De Blasio didn't run for mayor so he could oversee a pandemic. It's a distraction from his regular agenda. He just wants to get back to normal. Well, we all want to get back to normal, but it is the job of our elected officials to get us back to normal. More focus on the crisis, less daydreaming. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Tim Carney, Christine Emba, and Sam Brannon. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.